This is conversation 14. Jerry is stuck in solitary confinement while he tries to wrangle his legal nightmare. Once he proffers and agrees to a plea deal, he's transferred to a medium security prison. You are incarcerated at the MCC in downtown Chicago, which is a dreadful place by all accounts. You're there for four years. Why are you there for four years? And are you in solitary confinement for four years? Yes, I was there for four years. The U.S. Attorney's Office and my attorneys, Mike Ficaro and Dean Ellis, a former supervisor in the U.S. Attorney's Office, retired. We were going back and forth with the U.S. Attorney's Office. I had to proffer, tell them detail everything I did as far as the corruption was involved, me stealing money, doing warrantless searches. In addition to that, they asked questions about the operation of the police department. Was that widespread? Things like that. I would have to tell them everything I did verbatim. Of course, they had spoke to all the other guys involved, you know, on the case with me who had already been cooperating with them. So they had their side of the story. They wanted my side of the story to compare it. So basically, a lot of it was about what we did and the actions uh, on the street every day. The murder for hire came in at the very latter part of the conversations. But initially, it was all about us going out, going into the homes. Did we steal any of the drugs? What do we do with the drugs? What do we do with the guns? And like I reiterated to them over and over again, inventory system for the Chicago Police Department changed. Initially, it was paper in a book when you came on and you would just attach copies to the inventory property, which was sent along to evidence and recovered property section. But the drugs were separated there and put in a secure safe that only the police officers that worked there had access to. They knew by the recovery, uh, I'm sure talking to these people that we arrested, because they interviewed them too, I'm sure. There would be nobody that could say we stole drugs because we didn't. Uh, Everything we recovered was turned over. Millions and millions of dollars. Like one recovery was worth, it was valued at a street value of $15 million. Never took those drugs, never sold the drugs, never took the guns or sold the guns. Everything was inventoried and turned over to the police department uh, for destruction or held for evidence until the court cases were adjudicated. Are you being questioned by people from multiple agencies? And is it consistently the same person? And I ask this because are they trying to trip you up at all and rope-a-dope you? Or is it just more information gathering on their part because you're beyond further convictions? I was covered under when, I, I don't know in legal terms what it's called, but when I proffered and told them all the stuff and the things I did, the illegal stuff, um, like the stealing the money, searching houses, you know, without warrants, that was all covered under agreement that I would not be further prosecuted for any other additional stuff. But my lawyers and the U.S. attorney came to that agreement in a proper so. I sat with the two case FBI agents, and in addition to that, sometime I sat in with a internal revenue special agent who was with the criminal investigation division, who was also on my case because they charged me for filing a false tax return for two years. So that came into play with the IRS. And then there was the U.S. attorney, and initially 
a couple of the state's attorneys, Cook County state's attorneys. And I'm not saying that it wasn't easy, Neil, still being candid with them and telling them everything I did. But it was an uneasy feeling because I was admitting to everything. Not being an attorney, I knew that I was legally in trouble. I was going to be prosecuted, but I wasn't quite sure for what and what not. You felt like you had one foot in and one foot out and that you were trying to protect yourself, but you weren't sure that what you were saying wasn't going to put you in further legal jeopardy. Right. You didn't have clarity from your representation. You're under immense pressure. I'm being held in solitary confinement over there, and you're under great duress. They take you over there to uh, Dearborn, and I have to proffer and tell them everything I did in order to make a plea agreement with them. This dragged on because we got continuance at their discretion and at our discretion. My lawyers told me, take the continuances instead of rushing through this and just taking a plea and, and it being a bad plea and launching for an expensive amount of time. They asked me about how I operated out there, who was involved, trying to ask me about my supervisors, asking if I can implicate any of them. I think that they had a sense that I was protecting people, but I wasn't. I didn't have anything to tell them. I wasn't going to implicate my supervisors when they had nothing to do with this. There was a little frustration on their side. I think they were disappointed that I wasn't able to give them the keys to the corruption of the police department. But I sensed that they were frustrated with me. They thought I was holding it back uh, and not being truthful with them. And I told them the same thing that I'll say now. I'm not going to say something to make you guys happy or to provide information that's not true and implicate people. I, I, I wasn't going to do that. I just recently met an individual for breakfast. He had a friend, and I knew the guy because he worked on our team. And I just told him, I said, you know, that fucking guy was a bad dude, man. You know, he made up stories and said shit that didn't happen. And he goes, oh, I know. He said the FBI came to his house five or six times. And and I said, you know, he said that uh, one of the lieutenants was taking money and there was money being kicked up to this guy. And I said, he, he's lying. That never happened. And he goes, no, I know. He said that that was a fact, that that was happening. And I said, well, this guy must have been hallucinating because truly, and none of the supervisors were involved in anything there. I think they were disappointed, the U.S. Attorney's Office and the FBI agents. Their job is to obviously extract information out of you. They think you have more than you're telling them. And they're on a bit of Correct. a fishing expedition because they may stumble upon something and you may loosen up and tell them something, etc. How long does this process go on? Neil, I went over there probably eight times, I would say. To, to sit down and tell them everything I did proper and, you know, I mean, at least. And the thing is, it's just, you know, I went over there with my attorneys and I even told my attorney when he came, I go, what the fuck's going on here, man, with this? This is really dragging on. Let's get the show on the road here. And he goes, don't rush. Let's let's see what it plays out. Let them finish what they're doing. You know, they're going to do whatever they're doing, their investigation. Once they feel that you've told them the truth and it's the end of it, they can close this all up. It was frustrating, Neil, because I was living in that type of situation, you know, in a very small cell, getting a shower, I think uh, once a week, I believe it was, handcuffed out, handcuffed in, into the shower, no exercise. They ask if you want rec, and the rec room was just another fucking cell. So, oh, there was nothing in there. 
I mean, I don't have to go to wreck. Were you being treated worse because you're a cop? There was two sides to this coin. The one was to put me on a floor. It was probably extremely dangerous for me to be in the population there because it was Chicago. The other reason is I think that they made it a little harder on me because I don't think that they thought I was being truthful with them. It just dragged on and on. I told my lawyers, I said, listen, I, w- I want to resolve this. I want to get the fuck out of here and move on. I'm going to prison. Send me to prison. Got to the point where initially I had some visits where my family could see me and I could sit in a visiting room. Then they stopped that and it was only video visits. You know, how the fuck do you talk to your wife or your child over a fucking TV for a half hour? And you think that this was part of coming down on you, A, because you're a cop, and B, you were not being truthful to them. This is their mindset? I can't tell you something didn't happen. And I sense that they were disappointed by that. And I don't think that they thought I was being truthful. I told them everything I did. There was enough guys that fucking shit all over me and were involved in this that didn't go to prison for me to implicate other guys like my supervisors for what they didn't do anything and i'm gonna fucking lie and i mean if they think that it's truthful it's gonna come back on you neil because what the fuck you're gonna cost somebody their career or their fucking pension or or their freedom because they don't believe you so they want you to expand on something that you can't expand on were they saying specifically like Joe Blow, who's your supervisor, we know he did X, Y, Z. Tell us about it. Would they give you information that was more than abstraction? No. No. They just basically told me, were there supervisors that were taking money? I said, no, no, there were not. None of the supervisors were taking money. I said, no, they weren't. They went on to name names. Did Sergeant so-and-so. Did Lieutenant so-and-so. No, they didn't. You never gave them money. No, I didn't. They, did they know you were taking money? No, they did not. I mean, I'd be a fucking moron to tell my sergeants and lieutenants I was stealing money. I mean, it's, it's common sense. You're not going to put them in a position where they are supervisors. And so let's say that they didn't fucking turn you in. You're no longer going to be in special operations. Let's put it that way. Because they're not going to be able to fucking be culpable and, you know, have you out there doing stuff that they know is illegal because it's going to come back on them eventually. So when you go to proffer, where are you in your four-year journey? If you Is the proffer after you've come to your agreement or is it before and that you have to proffer to get to your agreement? Yeah, I have to proffer to get to my agreement. But there's like yep. a tacit understanding that they're going to nail you for the murder for hire, and then you're going to go proffer. And then after that, you're still only going to have the murder for hire. Is that, and the tax evasion or the two, the, you've already kind of agreed to the four things you're going to plead to. And no, then you proffer. No, no, Neil, I never, I never agreed to, to plead to the murder for hire all along. My lawyers, Ficaro and Dean Pellellis and myself, I said, I'm not pleading to the murder for hire because there was no murder for hire. Did you ever plead to the murder for hire? Yes, I did. 
in the end, I did. What I can say is, all along, I told those guys, and they knew it. I told them what I told him was to placate Herrera from cooperating against me. I did not want him. I mean, everybody fucking went to the grand jury already. He was the last one. And I don't know if I was dumb enough to believe that he wasn't going to do it. I just kept putting it off and putting it off and telling him, yeah, 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 I'm working on it. I'm working on it. Like I said before, you know, there was never any money exchanged. The FBI knew this. There was no hitman whatsoever. The FBI knew that because this was concocted by Herrera and the FBI because Herrera said that we had talked about it. So they pushed this whole thing and to get him to wear a wire on me because I would not go in to speak to them. Are you beating yourself up for being in this position? Oh, of course. Are you every day just saying, how the fuck, why did I do this? And why did I put myself in this position? Oh, a million times. Did you feel like the tables had turned on you in a way that you're like, now I know what it's like to be on the other side of the equation where you, is your mind go to that place? No, not there. But later when I got transferred and it's funny, when I was there, I would beat myself over it because I'm like, you know, thinking, what the fuck, man? What what did I do? Just stupid. And, you know, for nothing. It wasn't worth it. And I just said I threw away my, my career and, uh, you know, my reputation and caused, you know, a heartache for my family, for my wife and son. Me, I mean, fucking who cares? Uh, but I embarrassed them. I put myself in that position and, uh, you know, there were, you know, uh, let's put it this way. Sleep was a hard thing to accomplish because I couldn't. I was, I turned into a somniac listening to the radio and then I would be extremely like exhausted and fall asleep during the day. And then it's hard. But being in that situation, you can't fucking sleep in there. These, they have special housing. They have a lot of mental people down there. They have people who don't want to fucking get along with other people. They're constantly kicking their fucking doors. They're yelling all night, screaming all night, flooding the range. And by I mean flooding the range, they fucking back their sinks and toilets up. And the next thing you know, you hear someone say, get your shit off the floor. That means that there's fucking water coming. And you look and sure enough, there's water everywhere. So there's no sanity in there, especially in that environment at the MCC with the special housing because you're, you're locked up in close proximity. Everything's amplified. Is the MCC the worst of it in terms of your incarceration? Probably the first year I was there, I didn't have anybody ever put in with me. But after that, I had everybody put in with me. They would be bringing people in and they'd knock on the door, you know, hey, can you take cell me? You know, what fuck? Why do you say no? Because if you say no, then they write you an incident report. I'm like, yeah, okay, man. If you got to cuff up, then they bring the guy in, they uncuff him, uncuff you. What's up? You know, what happened? You know, I was up there, I got in a fight with this guy or, uh, you know, whatever, you know, they caught me with this or you know, this, that, whatever. I was getting roommate. I'd get every fucking weirdo in the world. Was any of it positive? Was there any positivity to the social interaction? Well, there. it's funny you say that because there were a few normal ones. You could buy the cards off the commissary. So play rummy, have conversations, you know, where are you from? Where are you living? What do you do out there besides being a criminal, you know? For the most part, black people, white people, you know, Hispanic people room in with me. But I told them right off the bat, I said, listen, man, if you don't want to be in there, I got it. I used to be the police. 
I don't give a fuck about that. And they want to ask you questions. You know, what about if they caught you doing this? Or what about if they did this? What about, I mean, I want to be like, what the fuck? It's kind of funny, Neil, because I wrote letters probably for about a dozen guys to judges for like traffic shit, suspended licenses, you know, warrants, because these guys, some couldn't read and write. They couldn't put it into words. So I wrote them letters, wrote the judges letters, and it's, uh, you know, I'm going to change my life, blah, blah, blah. Plan on becoming a truck driver when I get out. I'd like to clear up my driving record. And <laughs> and I was like a pro se lawyer. Were you in this moment? Are you finding like some humanity in yourself that the rough edges of Jerry Finnegan are kind of coming away? Are you relating with people in a different way because of this circumstance and letting your guard down? Well, I never let my guard down. I told them what I did for a living. So I had to be, you know, on my toes just in case. You know what I mean? They want to be sleeping and have some motherfucker try to smother me or something. But I met a couple guys, black kids. I did this and I got this and I got this traffic and they're not going to, my points are high because of that, you know, to go somewhere else. And, and I said, well, tell me about what happened. And they tell me, I go, well, what, why didn't you go to court? And I know I didn't go to court. They never fucking go to court. You know, these, these fucking guys are these tickets and shit like they don't, they blow it off. So where was it at? Uh, I'd ask this lady, librarian, she was the education lady, Miss Marsh. I said, hey, can you give me the address for uh, the uh, Lake County Court up in Waukegan or whatever, the courtroom for this judge. This is the guy, he doesn't have the first name, but this judge. And then she'd come back, you know, what do you need that for? I said, I'm going to write a letter for him. I would write these letters and fucking sure enough, man, these guys would get mailed back like, you know, a week later, two weeks later, and they'd be like, lift the warrants. And a guy would be like, fucking, oh, man, you're the best. I kind of laugh. You're like a country lawyer, but you're stuck inside with the criminal. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, did you, pretty did that make you feel good? Well, I mean, I don't know. Neil passed the time. Uh, I was entertaining myself, too, I, can't, I have to say. But, uh, you know, the one guy's like, you know, I did a burglary. You know, and I said, yeah, dude, I'm not a criminal attorney. I could, you know, you got some traffic tickets or something like that. Maybe you can get your license reinstated. But, yeah, I I mean, I don't want to give you bad advice here, man. Listen, I was hard on those game bears. You know, when you see the other side and you start talking to this kid, you know, you know, where do you live? Uh, yeah, what, what's your what's your dad do? Well, he's dead. Or I don't know my dad or this, that. So you're like, you know, I'm not being like fucking weirdo turning like, a, you know, for lack of a better word, to like fucking do a transformation into a, you know, fucking lib. You know, I mean, you were, this kid's telling you were, you were turning into a uh, social activist for Black Lives yeah, Matter yeah, in jail. Yeah. On a serious note, I think this is interesting because you, your job was to lock up criminals. Now I'm playing rummy with them and, you know, laughing and joking and telling stories and, you know, tell me, you know, tell me about, you know, what you do on the street about being a police and this and that. You start telling stories and they're laughing. He's like, oh, fuck, you know. That's crazy. And then I'm like, oh, tell me, you know, what, what are you doing? Is that, how many people you shoot? Nah, I ain't going to tell you that. I go, man, oh, fuck, I don't give a fuck. Well, you know, I mean, I might have shot one or two, you know, but I didn't kill nobody. You know what I mean? You know, but it, it's kind of funny because, you know, I'm having a conversation with this kid. For lack of a better word, we're living together in a fucking cell, six by nine, talking every day, laughing, telling funny stories to each other. And then he tells me he's having an issue, you know, when he wants, you know, I can't do this, I can't do that. And I'm like, well, you know, here, man, I'll tell you what to write. Well, can I tell you something? Yeah. I, I don't, I can't read and write, to be honest with you. I'm like, all right, man, it's no big deal, man. I said, I'll write the letter for you. 
No, I think it's awesome. This is part, this is what makes your story great is that you, you're forced into a situation to engage with people that you would otherwise suspect as criminals who may have been criminals. Well, they were, but I was a criminal at that time, Neil. You're in jail. The playing field is leveled. You have no other options, but it gives you the ability to adapt in another extreme environment. Yeah, it was funny because that would come into play later, too, because when I was at different prisons and you were a cop, I go, yeah, damn, man. We live with a cop. I go, oh, here's the correction on that. I was a cop. I almost fucked the convict. You know, so you and I are the same. I don't know about that. Well, you know, but the bottom line is they either associated with you or they didn't associate. I mean, I didn't want to be friends with all these motherfuckers anyway. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm going to see them in passing. There were some guys in there that I met that were, you know, when I got out of the MCC, that truly, if you close your eyes and you're talking, you're like, we could be in a fucking bar having a conversation. They're holding you until you negotiate a plea deal. And then it's all this negotiating of your plea deal up until they transfer you out after you proffer. Like, what is four years? What the fuck are you doing for four years? Yeah. Neil, I'm going to tell you, here's the thing, too. I wanted to go to trial. I truly did. Uh, Mike Ficarro, not so much Dean Pirellis, Uh, And you don't hear this from a lawyer, but this is what he truly said. He said, you cannot afford to go to trial. I go, in what sense? He said, in the sense that you cannot financially afford to go to trial. He said, it will cost you hundreds of thousands of dollars. And I said, that doesn't make sense, Mike. And he goes, well, it is. Because we have to prepare. And there's a lot of time involved in that for defense. And Dean, you know, I mean, this guy was a supervisory U.S. attorney. You know, I just told him, I said, Dean, this is what you did. What do you think? He goes, well, listen, I'm going to tell you something. They don't have a case against you. That's my gut feeling and my knowledge from, from being in this office. But a fucking jury's a, a strange thing, man. You know, it's a strange thing, and it could go either way. And he said, I'm going to tell you right now, if they if they get you guilty, and there's a good chance they will because they get 97%, he said, they're going to launch you. So. We went over there, and I guess Mike and him told him that I was thinking about taking it to trial. This U.S. attorney, assistant U.S. attorney, told me, okay, you want to take it to trial? He says, okay. He says, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. He said, I'm going to put Hobbs Act charges on you. He said, you know what the Hobbs Act is? And I, I said, yeah, I know what the Hobbs Act is. And he goes, okay, well, if I put three or four Hobbs Act charges on you while you're carried a firearm in the commission of a crime, those are seven years minimum of each. That's 28 years, plus on top of this charge. You want to take your chances and roll the dice? Let's do it. Went back and talked to Mike. Dean and, and Mike said, Jerry, if he charges with the Hobbs Act, they're going to fucking launch you, man. You're talking for 40 years. So they basically said, it's either 12 years or 40 years, you decide. Well, why wouldn't they charge you with the Hobbs Act anyways? Why would they? Why wouldn't they? If you're such a bad guy and their job is to put you away and they've got you for a murder you know, for hire Neil, and I, tax evasion, why don't they nail you with the Hobbs Act? I don't know, Neil. It's, that's funny because the 12 years, I think, uh, on a plea deal, they get their uh, pound of flesh. 
And I think that's what it was. If I took the 12 years, it was said and it was done. But I think if I took them to trial, they said the added cost of taking it to trial for the government uh, and not accepting the responsibility, which is a reduction, if you accept the responsibility, that lowers your sentencing guidelines. But if you don't accept the responsibility and you take it to trial and you lose, say I does extra charges on it, a Hobbs Act, and, and, and you know what, Neil, maybe he was playing hardball. I don't know. I think it's a good negotiating ploy on their part because they hold something out. If they show you everything and you're like, well, then I'm just going to go to trial on this, then they don't have any leverage to force you into the plea. So the Hobbs Act is in the back, hovering in the back as the thing they pull out, right? It makes sense. I would later meet a few police officers from uh, one from Chicago and a couple from various places in the United States that they charged with the Hobbs Act. Uh, one in the Northern Illinois district got charged with the Hobbs Act and uh, it enhanced their sentences a lot. Do you think that you did the best you could with your plea deal? If you could do it over again, would you do it the exact same way? No, I would not. And the reason I would not is because when I hired that Mark Barnett, I fired Fakaro. I didn't want to fire Pellelis, but I had no choice because he was with Mike and he wouldn't have represented me by himself. So I hired that Mark Barnett. That was one of the worst mistakes ever made. This guy is still practicing law. Basically, for lack of a better word, he's a fucking liar. He's a shyster liar. He'll lie to you and tell you uh, how hard he's working for you, what he's going to do for you. You know, I know these people. I've been dealing with them a long time. We're going to get you a better deal. Uh, and then that's just to suck you in and get your money because he fucked me in the end. And I say that because when it was time for me to take this plea agreement, he came to see me and said that the probation officer from the Department of Probation was going to come and do my pre-sentencing uh, report. It's called a PSR or a PSI too pre-sentencing investigation. He told me when he comes tomorrow, don't make any statements. Just answer yes and no. Don't expand on any of the answers. Agree to everything he says. So I said, well, why would I do that? Because I want to tell my side of the story. He goes, listen to me. I talked to Brian, which was Nettles, the U.S. attorney, the assistant U.S. attorney on this. And he said that we've been working together for a long time on cases. Okay. Uh, I faced him many a times in the courtroom and on agreements, plea agreements. And he said that if you plead to the murder for hire, that he will get you to a camp. You'll be taken care of. A camp is as low as you can go, custody level. I said, okay, Mark, all right, is he legit? He goes, he's, he's going to take care of you. So when the probation officer came to see me, a uh, young guy, and was asking me, and he told me, uh, tell me your side, you know, of what happened. Um, and uh, I said, I'm, I'm just going to stipulate to uh, to uh, the facts that you have in the, uh, the investigation. And he goes, you don't want to make any statements? I go, no, I don't. So I believe Mark, that was the wrong thing to do, because the guy lied to his teeth. And I would later meet people in the system who had been represented by Barnett. He lied to them, too. And fucked them. Okay, hold on one second. Now let's wind back. Before this moment with him, where he tells you to just answer questions yes, no, and do not elaborate, 
Had you had yeah. any issues with him? No, no. He's my attorney, uh, Neil, and I and I trusted him because he had been practicing law for shit thirty years, uh, and this guy had represented some big people, some mobsters like Butch Petroselli, the guy that hit Manny murdered. What he does is he represents many of defendants in that building. So if he can deliver me up, high profile case, and I told him, Mark, I'm I'm not now to a murder for hire because I didn't fucking there was no murder for hire there was no hitman where's the fucking hitman what's his name there was no person they brought forward Jerry hired this guy because there was no act of furtherance I never fucking hired anybody I never gave any money this was all fucking the FBI pushing Herrera towards this because Herrera's attorney they made the deal to get off the hook and snare me that way so I told Barnett that I would plead to a civil rights violation, but I'm not playing to a murder for hire. He goes, it's the same thing. I go, no, it's not, Mark. And he goes, yes, it is. It's the same amount of time. Give them their, their headline, and Brian's going to take care of you. And unfortunately, I was fucking gullible enough to believe him. I never found myself to be gullible, but in that situation, and after being beat down for that many fucking years, I was ready just to move on. How did you know that you were wrong? When I went in front of this judge, Blanche Manning, and that's the other thing he tells me, you don't have to make a statement. I go, uh, it's my fucking life, Mark. I'm going to make a statement. Well, you can do whatever you want to do. And I did. I made a statement. And I told the judge, I'm not going to hang my head. I did a lot of good work out there. I saved a lot of people's lives. I took a lot of guns off the street, put a lot of bad guys away. And she goes, well, wanting to kill other police officers minimizes all that. And I'm like, you know what? That was the stupidest fucking thing. I should have never agreed to that. Never. I mean, it was too late, Neil, because I fucking, in hindsight, I should have fucking just let Ficaro fucking string out all those civil cases make his billing for the city, and then still do the criminal case. Because by hiring Barnett, that was, a, that was a big fucking mistake on my part. That guy was the biggest liar, do nothing, and I'll say it now, whoever hires that guy is a fucking moron because that guy is a piece of shit and he's a fucking liar. Did you ever have words with him? No, I didn't. You never wrote him a letter? You never? No. Nothing? No. No. Because you know what? If I would have wrote something in there that I shouldn't have wrote, I would have been hammered. What were your expectations? Two years, three years, four years? If they gave me five years, I would have said, well, okay, five years. I mean, that's a long time too, but I mean, fuck, man, you know. But when they, when they said 12 years, uh, you know, they charged me with two years for filing a false income tax return. And then 10 years for the murder for hire. 12 years, you know, 144 months, you're like, what the fuck, man? course you get a little depressed and you know thinking about it and they come to see me and these fucking guys aren't going to prison these other guys are going to fucking a county jail for one month what the fuck am i going away for 12 years and you're transferred out of the mcc what is your state of mind how do you cope with what's in front of you for the next few years are you thinking about well, when I get out of here, I'm going to do this, or I'm going to try to figure out a way to get out early, or I'm just going to take this day by day and try to function. I know I'm facing six years still. Taking on a bus uh, with about 40 or 50 other guys. We leave the MCC. We're taking out to O'Hare Airport, what they call Conair. 
They chain you up. They take you from O'Hare Airport and then they fly you to Oklahoma City. At the airport is a prison facility right at the airport. It is called a uh, classification center. Bring everybody and then they send them all over the country from there. Same thing, locked down in a facility, uh, but you can go out and walk around, watch TV and stuff like that, play cards. Went uh, there for about a week and then from there, transported again to Atlanta, which is like the MCC in Chicago, but it's a prison. It's not a holding facility. Was there for another week. So from there, we were bussed. My particular bus took us to Florida, and I was sent to a place called Coleman, which had uh, two high-security prisons called penitentiaries, Coleman 1 and 2. Whitey Bulger was at Coleman 2. A medium, a low, and a woman's camp, all in that same facility. It's huge. It's all fenced in separate facilities, but it's all in the same area, you know, same, same property. So I was sent to the medium, and I was there for about eight months, which uh, I thought was kind of odd because I, I had no criminal history or past. So when I got there, booked in, they take your photo. When you leave the receiving area, it's in your walk-in, and I came out of the door, and I'm walking down the walkway, and it's all these fences with barbed wire, and I'm like, what the fuck, man? I mean, it was really surreal. I was sent to the A unit first. For medium, I mean, I saw some fights. Saw one guy get stabbed. You know, when you go to eat in the chow hall, which is another experience, uh, you go in there and the whites only have five or six tables. Uh, the rest are all Mexican and blacks. And the blacks and the Mexicans don't eat together either. They all are, it's very segregated. There's no place for you to sit. You have to stand there until a seat opens in the white section. Nah, sometimes some of the Mexican guys would say, you know, they'd nod to you and say, yeah, you could sit down. If there was an open table, they'd let you sit in their section. People talk to each other, but there wasn't a lot of association amongst the different groups. It was like, you know, kind of tense. You could tell something could happen. For the most part, anything was resolved. They had shot callers. Even a new guy, the white shot caller would come and tell you, hey, listen, you know, I don't know what you do. I don't know what you're involved in. We, we don't deal with no child molesters. I know you're not a child molester. You wouldn't be in here. Just so you know, anything happens, any arguments between the races, you come to me and I'll talk to their guys and we straighten it out. There ain't no fist fighting. As a last alternative, man, we ain't going to have none of that here because we can't have a big problem here. I'm like, oh, fuck, he's talking fucking, you know, Japanese to me because I don't really give a fuck about all that. You know, I don't want to be involved in any of that shit. I just want to do my time and fucking get out of there. It's, it's a it's a crazy fucking world, but uh, propensity for violence, it's frequent. I mean, there, there's a lot of fights in there. You get people and you get people that are bugs. They're fucking on medication. They're not taking their medication. So, you know, they're just like fucking bugs, man. They People are talking about them, but they're not talking about them. So they're hallucinating. It's a crazy fucking deal there, man. And your strategy is to keep your head down. Jerry Finnegan is just going to bide his time. Yeah, yeah. I go to the library and read. I go watch videos up there. But the mediums were more secured. The movements were 10 minutes. They would announce a move, which meant that you can go to the library. You can go to the medical section if you had to go for an appointment. 
can go out in the yard on the yard move, but you had 10 minutes to go or go to the commissary if it was your day, uh, which was the store. You had 10 minutes to move. There was no freedom to move about. The doors were locked on the compound. The doors were locked in the unit, so you couldn't get out unless the officer opened those doors. So you were basically a fucking gerbil in a cage, basically. You know, you were confined in that fucking cage the whole fucking day. Unless you had to go, you know, I tried to get out on the yard as much as I could. If it was the weather was nice, Florida was a hotter than a motherfucker, but it was, you know, the, the units were air conditioned. You couldn't help but see the barbed wire fences and the guard towers, the guys up there with the guns. But for the most part, you just tried to make your day go by and tried to keep your mind right, keep busy, pass the time. Once in a while, I'd watch TV, but the TVs were controlled in a sense, they were controlled by the groups. The blacks had the majority of the TVs. They had all the sports TVs. The white guys, uh, we had one TV. And you could only watch so much fucking pickers and, uh, you know, salvage wars. And it was just garbage shit that they watched. I couldn't take it. So I would just as soon fucking go read a book or listen to the radio. When I went to the low after eight months across the street, there were way more activities, and the camps are even better than that. But I wasn't camp eligible because I pled out for the murder for hire. I was not. And then my lawyer fucking lied to me and told me that the U.S. attorney was going to make a deal and send me to a camp. That never materialized. So believe it or not, they lied to me. That's hard, hard to believe. I guess it's kind of like it came back full circle. I did a lot of lying to the dudes on the street. I was locking up, so fuck it. You know what I mean? It was fair. Let's end there. One more conversation to go. We'll be discussing the notorious photo of Jerry that leaked in an attempt to humiliate then-Mayor Rahm Emanuel. And we'll end with a Q&A. Thank you again for listening, and please stay with us for the final conversation of Finnegan's Take. <laughs>